Uh, the only person we need to get up here was Raz. I'll try to find something for him to do later. Um, grab your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 33. We are working our way through the book of Exodus. And we're in a section where we said that Exodus 32, 33, and 34 is kind of one story. I mean, the story of Exodus is one whole story, but this is one where it's like we kind of kind of have it all in our head at the same time as we work through it, but we're taking a couple of weeks to get through these chapters. And so what we saw last week was that Moses has been up on the mountain getting all of the instruction from the Lord on how to build the tabernacle on uh, the priestly garments, on the furnishings for the tabernacle, on the installation of the priests, and all of this information where Moses has been up on the mountain with the Lord while the people are encamped around the mountain and the glory of the Lord is around the mountain. All this information was to help the people of Israel be able to exist as a nation where God dwells among them. Where the tabernacle is going to be in the center of the camp and they are going to belong to God. God's going to be their God and they're going to be his people. That's the whole point of what's been going on. And y'all, it's going great. God aggressively, violently, powerfully, magnificently had rescued the people out of slavery in Egypt. Brought them into the wilderness. And there was some struggles as they were going along, but he gave them the law and they had, they had had a covenant ceremony where they said, all that the Lord commands, we will do. Moses goes up on the mountain. A real, literal, and figurative mountaintop experience. It's going well. And then as it's finishing up, the story goes, meanwhile, at the base of the mountain. And it falls apart. I mean, the wheels come off. They're 40 days into this covenant relationship with the Lord. And they say, we don't know what happened to Moses. Probably dead. We're pretty sure the cloud ate him. And they don't say that part, but that's what it seems like it's built in. We don't know what happened to him. Up, make us gods who will go before us. And they immediately break the first and second commands. Arguably the most important ones. One and two. They break them. They set up a golden calf and they rebel against God and they break the covenant. And Moses comes down. God says, go. The people have broken the covenant. They've broken out. Moses comes down and he destroys the golden calf and goes back up the mountain to try to make some restitution with the Lord. He says, maybe I can atone for your sin. He, we ended last week with him saying, if, if you can forgive them, forgive them. But if not, take me instead. And that's kind of where we are. We're in this moment, in this story, where what's going to happen? What's God going to do with this people who is this rebellious, this broken? That's where we are. So let's pray and pick up in Exodus chapter 33 and see what happens next. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you for the, the word that we can study together. And we pray that as we study this this morning, that you would give us a glimpse of your greatness and your glory and that we would worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1. Moses up on the mountain, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. This is a good start. 
God's saying, okay, I'm going to fulfill my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we've been doing this whole time where I'm rescuing this people, where they've all grown into a great nation, I'm going to fulfill this promise. And so he's bringing them out. He says, go. They're going to get to go to the promised land. Verse 2, and I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay, good. There's, a, there's people that are in the promised land, and we've been told that they're there, and they're wicked, and God's given them time, basically, to store up wickedness. They, they could have changed, but they don't, and so they've reached the point where he's going to drive them out of the land, but he says, I'm going to do it. It's not going to be on you to do it. I'm going to accomplish this. So I'm going to take you to the promised land, and I'm going to accomplish it. So good so far. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to provide. There's going to be provision. There's going to be abundance. It's going to be everything they need is going to be there. Agriculture and animals and crops and provision. It's going to be blessed. That's what milk and honey represents there. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God says, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to give you the promised land. It's going to be blessed. I'm not going. No tabernacle, no priesthood, no covenant people that are set apart. Like this, is, this is all what's at stake now. I'm not dwelling among you. And he gives his reason. So if you were inclined in the first half of the sentence to ask why, he tells you why. Because if I did, I would kill you. Because you are wicked. It's not safe for me to dwell among you because y'all can't handle that. That's what he's saying. And this is the tension that runs throughout the Old Testament. How does a holy God have a group of people belong to him? How does he relate to them and love them in the midst of their sin? How does a just God do that? How is this going to work out? Because if he's just and he's good, then he hates sin and he brings judgment on it. So that if he could hang out with rebellious, sinful, wicked, lying, murderous, idolatrous people, and he was fine with that, then he's the king of wickedness. He's not good. So he can destroy them in their wickedness. But then we go, Boy, but he loves them. He desires them. This is a real tension. This is a real problem. How does he love them and care for them and provide for them and make them his people and not go contrary to his holiness? And so right now what he's saying is, I'll get you there. I'll fulfill my promise, but I'm not coming. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. This is about to explain what's going on here. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Meaning they're, they're, they won't submit, they won't listen. When they said, we'll do all you command, no you won't. You're going to rebel. You are a stiff-necked people. 
If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They were an ornate people. They have been stripped of their ornaments. We don't usually use the word ornament that way. It's like, it like a Christmas tree. And it's trying to understand, like, what is this talking about? What are these ornaments? What were they wearing? What, what was going on? Well, they were wearing the plunder that God had given them when they left Egypt. This is, God promised this in Exodus 3, and then he carries it out in Exodus 12. This is what he says in Exodus 3. I will give this people, this is when he's talking to Moses at the burning bush. It's a promise that's going to happen. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And he says, when you're going out, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And then in Exodus 12, it happens. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they had let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. If you had been picturing a scrubby, poorly clothed group of Israelites wandering around the wilderness... You were wrong. They were decked out. They had drip. They were jangling when they walked around. They looked good. Multiple clothes. They had been slaves, but they walked out. They had plundered. So it was a well-dressed, shiny group of Israelites wandering around the wilderness. They probably looked a little out of place, but they were covered in this provision, this blessing that God had given them. And while they were following him, it was an indication of his excellency. It was a gift that not only was a blessing to them, but spoke of his greatness. But y'all, in Exodus chapter 32, it's what they used to make a golden calf. They took some of the gold that God gave them out of their earrings and made a golden calf so that they might worship and rebel against God. And God looks at him and says, take it off. What was meant to be a blessing, what was meant to be a picture of my provision and love for you, you've soiled it. It's like a married couple where he says, you've cheated on me. Take the ring off. I don't want to see you wearing that. You've broken the covenant. That's what's happening here. So they take it all off. That's the, the zone that they're in with him right now. Now, verse 7, the author is going to catch us up on some information that we need to have. Now, whenever I do this in a conversation, whenever I'm telling a story and I do this, I've done it on accident. I'm telling a story, and then I'm suddenly like, oh, wait. You get right to the good part, and you go, wait, 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 wait. We were in Steve's car. I need you to know that, or the rest of the story is not going to make any sense. And you realize, I should have said this earlier, the, the Hebrew authors, the, the, those who wrote the Old Testament, they do this on purpose. They give you the information that you need 
So I don't know if you've ever been reading the Old Testament. This, honestly, this can be very frustrating and also very encouraging. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament and you're like, I have so many questions. Why does it not give me more detail? And the reason it doesn't give you more detail is because they didn't want to. They gave you the details they wanted you to have, which means that every detail you read and you think, why is that in here? It's in there for a reason. You need to try to understand why is that here. And every detail that you really wanted to know they didn't give you, they say, nah, it's not important. This can be frustrating because there's sometimes you want answers that you don't get, but it's also very encouraging because it means you have what you need. So sometimes when we're working through stuff, I have discussions with people in our church family who are really interested in some things where it's like, well, how did the calendar actually work? And how did this actually work? And what did they do with this? Like, like we just looked at the ephod. How does the ephod work? How does, how does uh, uh, Urim, and, Urim and Thummim work? And the answer is, you don't need to know. Because if you did, it would have told us. But now it's telling us a thing. The author's catching us up on something that we need to know to understand the rest of this. It's a weird interruption into this story. But he's done this on purpose. So verse 7. It's, like, it's almost like it's pausing this story to say, now you need to know this before I can move on to the next part. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it says Moses used to do this. This is like a regular practice for them. So Moses had a tent that he called the tent of meeting, and he put it far out from the camp. Now this is a little confusing, because there's a part of the tabernacle that's going to be called the tent of meeting. This isn't it. They have the same name, but this is the original one, which Moses set up, and he set it outside of the camp. And he would go outside of the camp, we're going to see, to talk to the Lord. Meaning that the Lord would go talk to Moses there, but the Lord wouldn't come into the middle of the camp because that was dangerous for everybody. Now the tabernacle was going to be in the middle of the camp, signifying that God had set it up so that he could dwell among them. But that's not what this is. It's a tent of meeting outside the camp. Okay. And it's far off from the camp. Verse 8, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now they've been following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, fire at night, cloud during the day. And this has been the representation of God's presence and God's been leading them through the wilderness. And now we're learning... That somehow all along, Moses has also been taking a tent up and setting it up and that God would come and speak to Moses there. So that in chapters 16 and 17, when it said things like, they moved as the Lord commanded them, or they did this with the manna as the Lord commanded them. Seems likely this is how the Lord commanded. That Moses had the tent of meeting and that God would speak to him. Verse 9. Oh, no, we've just read that. Verse 10. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And this phrasing here does not mean that Moses literally saw the face of God, because we're going to see later, even in this chapter, that he's not allowed to do that. It's, a, it's an idiom, it's just a phrase that means regular, intimate communication. That God spoke to Moses in a distinct, relational way. 
the way you would talk to a friend. And we don't know, I don't know if Moses went in and closed the tent and the cloud would descend and then God would speak and he would speak through the tent or if the tent got to be open and he got to look at the cloud. We don't really know how all of that works. But what we do know is what we need to know because the Bible gives us the information we need to have, which is it would stand at the entrance and Moses would be in the tent and God would speak to Moses. And when Moses turned again, into the camp, his assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So Joshua stayed with the tent. Moses would go in and out. God would descend in the cloud and speak to Moses. Verse 12 picks right back up where we left off, but it seems like we must be supposed to understand that Moses is talking to God from the tent set off far from the camp. That's how this conversation is continuing. Because Moses was up on the mountain. He went down and said, take off all your ornaments. God said, we can go, but he's not coming. And if he comes, he's going to kill everyone. Because we're wicked. And again, that's not showing that God is pernicious, that he's uh, just grumpy. It's a real issue with his holiness and, our, and their wickedness. It's his holiness and their sin. So he's saying, hey, we, we're going to get to go, but the relationship's not going to be the same. The covenant's been broken. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord... See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and I have also, and you have also found favor in my sight. That phrase, that, that what he says God told him, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. That, this is the first time we've heard of that. We don't, there's not another place where he's referencing, but we're learning about it now that God has told Moses like, you're distinct to me. But what Moses is saying is, you have not told me who will, you'll send with me. And it seems like the tension here is, you're saying we can go. Are you going or not? Is it an angel? Is it you? You were going to lead us, but now you're not. Like you haven't, like what, what's going on here? This seems like that's the tension because that's what continues to play out in this conversation. But then he says, I know, you say, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Verse 13, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight. So he's about to make a request. And I don't know, like, if you've ever, like, called one of your parents up or something and was like, hey, it's your favorite child. And they're like, What? I walk in and see my wife, and I'm like, you know how much you love me? What? She's not going to say, oh, yes, I know how much I love you. So when he says, I found favor in your sight, you know me by name, it feels like, okay, he's about to make some kind of request. And he is. He's about to make a request. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, and he's not, I don't think he's being the way I would be if I said, you know how much you love me. I think he really is saying, Lord, if this is true, this seems like a genuine request. The genuine, if that's real, can I ask something? He says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Y'all, if I found favor in your sight, let me know you so that I might find favor in your sight. Moses' request is help us still belong to you. 
If it's true that I've found favor, tell me what you want. Tell me how to relate to you so that we can still belong, so that we can still have favor, so that we can still have you. That's his request. I want more of you. Verse 14. And he said, that's God. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, that's, and Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses says, if you're not going, we don't want to go. Because you're what makes it good. You, your presence is what makes us distinct. Your presence is what the blessing is, not the promised land. You. Y'all, look back at what God had said. Look back at the offer that God had made. At the very beginning, he says, depart, go up from here, you and the people with whom you have brought, or whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. What he said was... You're going to get what you've wanted. You're going to be blessed. You're going to get fullness. You're going to get provision. The promised land that y'all have talked about and thought about and known about, you're going to have it. You're going to have everything you've wanted, but I'm not going to go. And what does Moses say? If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is that... Is that what we would say? You know what you've been longing for? You can have it. You know what we've been building towards? You can have it. You can have all the things your heart desires, just not me. Moses says, no deal. Don't want that. It's a bad trade. And Moses is in the position to give that answer because he's seen more of God, known more of God, been the one up on the mountain. If God wasn't worth it and glorious and delightful, then Moses could just say, okay, sounds good. I'll go tell him. Promised land, here we come. Moses says, don't send us if you're not going to go. We don't want it. This idea, uh, we, we understand, we tell this story. We tell this story when it comes to dads. We understand that it's better to have your dad than to have your, the stuff that your dad might could get for you if he wasn't here. We tell that story. We've, you've seen that in a movie. You've read that in a book. You've watched it play out in life. There are things that you thought, man, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could have a bigger house? Wouldn't it be nice if we could have nicer stuff? It'd be real nice if I could just get the clothes that I really wanted every time I went to school. It'd be nice to live on the lake. It'd be nice to have a jet ski. It'd be nice to go on the vacations. We, we've had all those thoughts. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just have had a car? But then we also know that if there's a dad who goes and buys all that stuff and you get all the stuff, 
but you don't get a dad, it's a bad trade. We know that, that you'd be better off to have a dad who knew you, cared about you, showed up to the ball game, helped you in life. We tell this story, and that's what God's saying. Y'all can have the stuff. I'm not going to go. And Moses says, we don't want that. Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. Every time Moses finds an end, he asks for more of God. Every time Moses just, can, All right, let me, then give, give me more of you. Let me see more of you. Let me know more of you. Y'all, the, the request that Moses made is ultimately what God desires. And this story gets better. Because we, we travel through the Old Testament wondering, how's God going to fix this problem? Because his people are wicked. They're awful. Once they get into the promised land, like they don't even get to go at first because they rebel again. And once they finally get in there, it's a train wreck. The end of Judges ends with them being as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Like they've just replayed the Sodom and Gomorrah story as the people of Israel. Like it's just, it's just awful. It gets worse and worse. And we're just traveling along going, what is God going to do? How's he going to redeem this people? How's he going to rescue this people? How's he going to have a people that belong to him that, that are so wicked? How is, how is he going to dwell among them and not destroy them? What Moses wants, God wants even more. This story gets so much better. Because God so loves the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. That he sends his son to die so that we don't die. That he sends his son to give up his life so that we can have life. That he sends his son to overcome sin, which is the problem, so that we might belong to him sinlessly because of forgiveness. Y'all, I can imagine that there was a moment where Moses, after his life, in eternity with the Lord, when this plan got rolled out in front of him, and he was like, oh, praise, praise you, Lord, that you're so good. There was a moment where he was like, yes. Because I think Moses kept wandering around in the wilderness going, these people are sinful. I don't know how to fix this problem. We want God. He's glorious. He's wonderful. He's the best, but he can't be around. And what are we going to do? And then God says, let me show you how I'm going to pay for their sin. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to come in the flesh. I'm going to die so that they can be forgiven. And then guess what? I can dwell among them and not consume them. Because I'll have consumed their sin, paid for it with my own blood. I can imagine that was a delight to Moses because he says, yes, then they all get what I got, which is to relate to you. And they get it even more than I got because they get to see you face to face. This is what the disciples saw after the resurrection of Jesus. That he had come, that he was glorious, that he had rescued them, that this was God. And so they say, I won't trade anything for this. I'll give up everything to have Christ. That's all I want. Y'all, the wonderful part of this is that God is not the dad who wants to give you the stuff and not have you belong to him. 
The wonderful part about this is that God wants you and he wants you to have him because he is good and he loves you. That's the glorious part about the gospel. That's what the disciples saw was the glory of Christ so that they said, I'll trade everything. I'll give up my life for this. That's what Paul saw. So that in Philippians, he can say, I count everything else as rubbish because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything else is garbage. I'll take him over everything else that you could offer. And that should be the same for us. Y'all, the promised land isn't the promised land without his presence. Heaven isn't heaven if Jesus isn't there. And some of us have provision and presence connected. So the only way you know that God loves you is by your circumstances. He can only love you in the promised land. He can't love you in the wilderness. But in this story, we see that God is in the wilderness. And he says, I'm not going to the promised land, but y'all can go. And Moses says, we'll take the wilderness with you over promised land without you any day. We'll be the people. Because y'all saw the choice he got. We could be the people who were provided for, who had a good land who were protected. We could be the people who had conquered the entire promised land, drove them all out. We could have been that people, but you wouldn't be there. Or we can be a non-bedazzled, wilderness-dwelling, tent people who have the glory of God. Oh, we'll take the tent. We'll take the wilderness. We'll take the manna. We'll eat that every day if we get you. Can we say that? Or do we only have milk and honey connected with God's love? Y'all, there's a lot of milk and honey preaching. There's a lot of milk and honey Instagram. There's a lot of milk and honey devotionals, which say that if you have God, you'll automatically have the promised land. Everything will work out. Everything will be wonderful. And that's how you know that you're blessed is that he's going to provide these things. But sometimes what you get is the wilderness and the presence of God. And you realize that's better. Oh, it's so much better. It's not worth the trade. So do we want Jesus or do we want what we think he'll give us? I want to tease this out a little bit. God does bless us with good things. His desire is that they would have worn their ornaments, but that they would have worn them in relationship with him, in delight and enjoyment of him. But if he has to choose between him and the ornaments, the better choice is him, no ornaments. Does that make sense? It's wilderness and him is better. And so sometimes the thing you're most frustrated with him about is the place where he is showing you the most love. Because there are some of you who are so mad with God because he won't let you have the thing you want. I don't understand why I can't just have the relationship. I don't understand why I can't just have the health. I don't understand why I can't just have the job. I don't know why this person gets to drive that, and I'm driving this, and I'm like a half a step away from having to Flintstone it so that drive is in quotations. I don't know. And that God wants himself for you, not the stuff for you. And if the stuff confuses you, there are times where God in his grace will say, no stuff for you until you understand that's better. And there is a way that you get all the stuff 
And it's not God's love. It's his wrath. Where he says, you can have it. You just can't have me. You can have it. You just can't have me. Some of you, as we try to figure this out, one of the questions I think you need to ask yourself is, am I mad at God because he hasn't provided the stuff? Am I questioning whether or not he's real because he hasn't provided the stuff? Am I doubting his goodness because he hasn't given me the stuff? Because I'm in the wilderness, he apparently can't love me, he can't be good. Are you willing to walk away from him so that you can have the stuff? Because then what you're saying is, I thought you were the best cloud to follow to the promised land. But if you're stopping here, I'm going to go to the promised land. Which is money, relationship, health, kids, whatever. And sometimes it's like, I'm going to follow Jesus because he'll bless me. I'm going to follow Jesus because he'll provide for me. I'm going to follow Jesus because he'll give me good kids. He'll give me a good wife. I'm, he'll, he'll give me the husband I want. He'll give me the job I want. I'm going to claim it in his name and I'll get to have it. And it'll belong to me because he's the one who provides for me. And he can give you those things, but he does not guarantee that we'll get those things. And we're better off to have him and nothing than to have everything and not him. One of the ways to figure this out is where am I mad at him? One of the ways to figure this out is when do I pray and read my Bible? When your bills are paid and your health is good and your friends are friendly, does your Bible gather dust? And then things get hard and we run to Jesus? Pause. What I'm not saying is don't run to Jesus when it's hard. No, we should. But what I am saying is if that's the only time we do, it's possible we really want the stuff and we don't know how good he is because we don't want him when we have the stuff. What Moses says is, you're the stuff. He was waiting for that moment when he says, and I'm going. And he says, if you don't go, I don't want to go. Are we willing to stay in the wilderness as long as Jesus is there? Or are we ready to move on if he's not going to take us where we really want to go? And here's what I want you to hear. When we say Jesus is better than everything else... We mean it. I want you to see what Moses sees. I want you to know Jesus the way the disciples knew Jesus, the way Paul knew Jesus. I want you to know God the way Moses knew God. So that you say, as long as I have you, I have everything. And then if you give me stuff, it'll fit right in the right place. You'll be the most important. That'll be great. I'll enjoy that, but as I enjoy you. And we need to grow as people who learn how to delight in the goodness of the Lord and really enjoy him because he is what is good. And he loves us so much that he died to save sinners so that we might belong to him. And I hope that we would see that and we would see him the way that Moses saw him so that we might say, as long as I have you, I have everything. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that in Christ you rescue us out of slavery. And we thank you that in Christ you bring us to the promised land. We're thankful that this picture plays out fully and ultimately in the work of Jesus on the cross as we approach you by faith. But Lord, we want you. We want your glory, your goodness. We want to belong to you and have you belong to us. We want to see you face to face. That is what makes heaven heaven. And so, Lord, may we not be willing to trade you for anything else because you're better than everything else. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to sing about how good Jesus is. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. There's communion set up in the back of the the auditorium, there's communion set up here. And that communion is for Christians who are remembering that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, and that we have Christ. And so what I want you to do this morning, if you belong to Jesus, if you're not a Christian, communion's not for you, but Christ is offered to you that you might approach him by faith, that you might ask for forgiveness of sins and receive it because he paid the price of your sin. So we would invite you to know Christ and to see him as glorious and good and as all you need. But Christians in the room, as we take a moment to repent of sin and to be thankful for the grace that is offered us in our sin, I want you to know that you have Christ. And as you go to take communion, I want you to remember he's all I need. There's some stuff right now that you want. There's stuff right now that you desire. There are things that would be good and would be blessings from the Lord, but they are not necessary. They're good, but they're not God. So I want you to take a moment. As you consider his broken body and his shed blood and a new covenant for you where you have forgiveness of sins and that you have him forever, I want you to know you really do. If you've trusted in him, you really do. He's, uh, he's really paid the penalty for your sin and he belongs to you. And I want you to take a moment where you say, Lord, you're all I need. And wherever anything is getting in the way of that, take this moment this morning to say, I don't want that, I just want you. Let's sing together and take communion when you're ready.